Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week's guest is Will Kirkman. He's MD at one of the longtime suppliers to the green building industry, eco merchant, and consequently, he's a man who's been there for the significant changes that we've seen over the last 15 years. We did sketch out a few ideas for the conversation, which you will hear Will explain to Jeff as we start the episode. But mainly, we talked about the culture of green building. And consequently, it was a fascinating chat. He's a good raconteur. So, no need to hang around. Will does the introduction for us. Just a heads up, it sounds a bit choppy for two reasons. His mic were a bit weird at the beginning, cutting in and out. And uh, I had to cut out a section where we weren't comfortable publishing some of what we were talking about. So if any of the edits feel a bit abrupt, uh, that's why. Anyway, right. Thank you for joining us. I'll let you get into it. Cheers. It's, it's ridiculous that it's taken this long for us to, to get talking to, to Will. When you guys were talking about the uh, the, the podcast yesterday, did the Styco and Kingspan thing come up? Because we, we don't have to touch that, touch on that. Jeffrey, you need to read your brief that was sent no, this I morning. No, I don't. I'd read a brief. Yeah, no, I don't. Nine twenty. Oh, That's man. part of the brief. Like I send it to everyone. We get feedback for everyone, and Jeff never looks at it. That's <laughs> fine. Yeah, uh, no, it, it's just there's a, there's a live kind of issue, that, but who knows what they'll do, you know, in six months' time or a year's time or whatever, you know. So anyway, it's just worth that's something that we that will um it would be stupid not to mention the fact that you know Styco is one of the products that you that that you do. Um, oh no, so. I'm 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 happy to talk about that, and I'm happy to talk about it. I I and describe ourselves as Styco's UK wholesaler, for example. I okay. don't have a problem with that. Okay, but um, and neither would Styco have a problem with that. So basically what Dan sent us, which I have read, but now I will read it for you, Jeff. Okay, thank is, you very much. <laughs> um, just, the, just the introduction is sort of the, the eco-merchant story. Then there's a bit on the culture of building. So, for example, we were talking about carbon yesterday, yeah. you know, and you, it, it's, 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 it reminds me of a, a, a Woody Allen quote from Love and Death when he's um, he, he hid in a cannon and got fired out of the cannon and killed a Russian general. <laughs> and uh, he's being mocked by the real army. And he said to them, he said, you should have such inadvertent heroism. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of those things where, you know, we, we, we've been, we have been an inadvertent hero for, for sequestered carbon since we've been, since we've got going really. Mm. So it's a recognition of, 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 you know, what, what's moving in the market and what's making things. Then we've got the, the difference between retail commercial markets, muscle changes, how are eco merchant? Making the sustainability uh, sustainability attractive to people. Spend a lot of time in our industry going to technical things for technical people, and it you know you have to. to Passive House Plus is a good example. Passive House Plus, the people who read it most avariciously are the people who are already doing it. Yeah, and so you know it, part of this is if you, if you've got a club and you want it to be bigger, you don't want you know if you if you own a golf club, you want people to learn how to play golf, not just yeah. people who are bloody good at it. Yeah, you know, and and play six times a week because yeah, they're retired. A- this is this is a, an endemic problem throughout the green building sector, which is only just really beginning to change. Where the heads, it was a it was a club for like two three decades, pretty yeah. much. And the the people who brought it forward, it was as much to say it was as much like a, a social exercise as anything else isn't true. That's to be sound potentially demeaning of it, but there was a a quality of like solidarity and people all being in it for the cause it, and finding common cause and building yeah. relationships. It's an identifier. It says to people, this is what I am and, and who I am and what I think. Yeah. 
It's like you know, I, music as a, as a kid or whatever. Exactly. It's yeah. It's, yeah. And you know, I, I just need to. If you read a newspaper, what do you read? If you, someone says the Guardian, I'll look at them differently. If they say I read the Express, so yeah. you know what. And you behavior, actually read the Express. Where else are you going to find the news about who killed Princess Diana? <laughs> or where Shergar is? <laughs> I reckon Shergar did it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that's an interesting dynamic, and and there are people who wear their badges more proudly and more obviously than others i mean the best the best analogy i think we can we can probably use is the food analogy where you know if you had a vegetarian or a vegan friend and you brought them home to meet your parents in the 1970s or 80s they would have been considered to be bloody odd mm-hmm. yeah but now if you know if you go around to someone's friend's house and, and the parents cooked a meal and they cooked a vegetarian meal you'd say nothing and just fine absolutely normal it's exactly what it is you know and it, and it superseded organic as well you know organic used to be the thing and then it was and it was compassion in farming and then it was all the rest of it so there's are all variations on a theme but what it all relates to is healthy eating mm. yeah and so you know the, the the whole bit about this as far as i'm concerned is about getting the message across what we're talking about that's why we have campaigns called healthy building it's a much easier sell in some respects i mean no one's going to say you're never going to say would you like a healthy building no go on give me an unhealthy one yeah but so it's very difficult to argue against it. But equally, it's extremely difficult to get people to change their behaviour. Well, I think that's where. So your eating analogy is really the appetite, because that does bring in like the economic factors where poor people can't afford to eat well because they're loading up on calories, and similarly, they can't afford. If you're not wealthy to one degree or another, in relative terms, if not absolute. Like you can't really afford a healthy home. Like kids now renting, it's hard to find a, a an adequate amount of accommodation, like space or health, or be protected against damp and mold and getting people to to fund that. Sorry, Jeff. Yeah, I think there is actually something here, just to stretch the metaphor a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. Into McDonald's, um, because I yeah. remember um, it being said uh, that uh, that the the way the, the they design their restaurants if you call them that is to make them attractive to whomever they're to their, you know to their intended kind of customers and so on from outside but as soon as you get in there it's a horrible experience you know the whole idea is to get you out as quickly as you can and i wonder whether there's not uh, an equivalent that's uh, that the kind of slum landlords or whatever could could adopt in the uk Sheltered housing that kills people, so you know, and move people, <laughs> move people on quicker. Remove the surplus population. Alas, yeah, strange. We don't necessarily want healthy homes all the time. Maybe, maybe there's a market for unhealthy buildings. You know, just to go back to the to the food analogy, one of the things that helped move it away from you know patchouli oil smelling loon wearing sort of you know weirdos in the seventies, of which I was one. Is you make it cool and you 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 encourage them. So it was people who had appeal to their own audience. So you had you know cool vegan and vegetarian chefs. It, the, the, the nature of the badge you were wearing changed from being I'm standing out for being odd or unusual as far as you're concerned, not as far as I'm concerned, to being tell you what you should do. What I'm doing because it's really cool, and that's what happened. And you know you you meet far more proud and understanding and acceptable vegans and vegetarians. I can remember going to dinner parties in the 70s and 80s, you know, where you would you would have proper intellectual moral rows with people about vegetarianism. Yeah. yeah? And but you don't have that anymore. It's just a, it is quote unquote another lifestyle choice. You're right. And you need to get away from the kind of the virtuous but tedious, you know. Well, yeah. Actually, and, and the, 
I, I wonder whether that is true because I was talking with uh, Andreas Hensler of UBS uh, yesterday. He's uh, a, a comms guy there. And we, we found ourselves talking about the heat pump industry in German Germany. He's a, a German native. And so like, so last year, I had a conversation with Thomas Novak of the European Heat Pump Association and where I stepped in it a bit and embarrassed myself by talking about the heat pump as an image, heat pump market as an immature market where it is only immature in the UK. You didn't mention the war, did you? No. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like he corrected me. He was like, I'm paraphrasing, but mate, come on. Like <laughs> it's, it's really mature in Europe. It's a really natural choice to make in terms of home heating. And then speaking with Andreas yesterday, we just stumbled across this conversation where he was recounting how heat pump sales have fallen off precipitously in Germany as a, conse as a consequence of getting wrapped up in the culture wars. So alternative for Deutschland, My et cetera, God. Have, have made it a culture war issue, which has sent the the volume of gas sales rocketing and heat pump sales dropping. Now, I don't know the exact numbers. I just know it is significant. And there are degrees of acceptability. Like we were talking about with Tom Dollar the other week, like the negative or the, the peculiar and negative impact, impacts of the culture wars. Jesus wept. Well, I think the other thing is, 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 to do with, is to do with the capacity for somebody to actually implement change. So you, you've got you've got a whole sort of thing. You started off with right back again, and going back to the sixties again, where as kids we'd be playing spacemen, and mum would give us a couple of sweets on a plate, and that would be your roast beef and Yorkshire pudding as a tablet, because that's what we thought the future would be. When you go into space, you don't have a meal; you have a couple of tablets, and but that kind of thinking about everything being a panacea or instant, or you know, it's such a simple thing to do. We're an in, we're naturally an indolent, you know, being. We, we don't want to do stuff unless we absolutely have to. So the problem you've got is, is if it's a matter of just buying a different type of ready meal from the supermarket, then that's quite straightforward. But if it comes to insulating your house, it's a major problem. So you've, you, you end up compounding all of these issues. And so we, we become culturally less disposed to it. We have expectations which are in the wrong place. So we can't meet them. And guess what? Inertia. We don't do anything. Then the government try and regulate. And everyone goes, well, hang on a minute. Who's paying for this? as if we're unable to pay for this ourselves. And the whole thing becomes an absolute mess. And it's very, very difficult to pick your way through it. It's, it's, it's so difficult to do. I mean, the government, by their own admission, is so far behind with, with insulating homes. And with Labour abandoning their plans to spend at the level they had proposed, we are reducing the number of homes that are going to be insulated by something like two-thirds. I mean, you know, yeah. it's where where is this nation's priorities when it comes to um, looking after people's health? And then you you look at the argument again, and the people on the health side of the argument are going, "Hang on a minute, cold, damp people get ill more often. It exacerbates other diseases." The, the, you're you're getting this wrong. The cost yeah. of us remediating the problem in terms of human health is going to far outweigh the cost of actually putting some insulation in their houses. And then you get the argument saying, "Well," The, the 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 synthetic and and petrochemical insulation boys said, well, we can do this relatively inexpensively, and we're going okay. So now we're arguing against someone who's saying, well, doing something which we're going to do is better than doing nothing because we can we can make it cost effective and we can help. Yeah, 
So then they talk to government about getting some kind of cross subsidy or forming some sort of scheme with some sort of qualification in place. And still they fail. Well, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking, why, why are we even doing this? You ask when the priorities are, but like the, the government in waiting have made their priorities abundantly clear, like by, you know, symbolically reducing the cap on finance bonuses, by clawing back the, like Jeff likes joking about how cheaply UK politicians are bought, but it was widely reported yesterday, Rachel Reeves received funding from climate change deniers uh, and... I think a significant chunk of money just a couple of weeks before the 28 billion pledge was dropped or scaled back and then before it was dropped completely. Like in terms of health, we've got a, a minister in waiting in West Streeting who's absolutely desperate. You can see he's absolutely priapic with the idea of introducing more market-based forces and privatization mm. to, to the health sector. So more real people is going to be good for business. It doesn't really matter. The insulation industry, I mean, they'd be happier with them sticking more insulated cladding, flammable insulated cladding on the the exterior buildings up and down the country um, than sticking it meaningfully on the insides of people's homes. It would reduce demand from the, the demand that we draw from the energy companies. And British Gas, did you hang see on a second. Hang on, hang on a second now, hang on a second. Go on. Well, just uh, I'm not going to let you get away with uh, giving the impression that internal insulation is better than external insulation. Well, uh, all right, fair play. I uh, I was thinking cavities rather than internal. Well, cavities are that's not the inside. Do you live in a cavity, do you? Yeah. Well, how many cavities have you seen on the outside of a thing? No, well, not on the inside though. They're in the middle. We're not getting into a semantic <laughs> debate <laughs> yeah. about this. So, right, join that to an end. Blah blah blah. Don't need need to hear me bollock on anymore. So you two have known each other for a long time. Yeah. And Will has already alluded to the fact that he's migrated from, uh, what, long-haired, floppy, paisley-shirted, patchouli-oiled hippie to this this uh, capitalist beast, like the the primo eco-merchant. The um, empire. Yeah. <laughs> eco-spiv. He's an eco-spiv. Yeah. Eco-spiv. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so how did you... <laughs> How did you take this path and like, how did you come to end, end up meeting Jeff? Oh gosh, how far back do you want me to go? Well, just the interesting parts. <laughs> I, years ago, I was working for a, I worked for myself for many, many years, did lots of different jobs and eventually got, got a job with a, a larger company. Uh, I can say who it was, it was Burden, civil engineering company. I'm based in the Southeast of England and, and I came across a guy called Joe Wilde, who was running then had just really started a few years ago, previous to that, a company called Eco Merchant. And Joe's journey started when he wanted to build a sustainable home, couldn't find the materials he wanted to buy. But he could buy them direct from the manufacturer, but he had to buy more than he needed. So he sold off the surplus and a business was born. And we were already with the civil engineering company looking at the environmental side. Of course, it's utilities, it's water, gas, it's sewage, it's land management, it's in-ground stuff. So it kind of lends itself to more environmental behavior. And Joe and I got to know each other. And Joe let me know of his plans to emigrate. He wanted to go to New Zealand with his family, with his young family. And off he went to New Zealand, left his company here under the stewardship of a couple of other people. That didn't work out. And eventually we bought the business and incorporated it into our construction materials distribution business. That was subsequently sold. And then that was when I bought the company back out and um, set it up as it is today as an independent employee-owned business. With um, We have a covenant with a, a charity 
where we contribute every year to a charity uh, which runs, which built and runs a, a school for blind and orphan children in Burkina Faso in Africa. So that was where our journey began. So about that time, I think, I can't remember, Jeff, how long have you been going with PH Plus? He's on me 20 years. 20 years. So, so we're not in the UK. In the UK with Passfest Plus, it's it's since 2012. Yeah. So it was yeah, around so, and not long after then that we got talking. Um, so our time in the 2012, we, we've remained the same for, format as really since 2014, although the company's been going since 1998. And so, I mean, there's just a, a meeting of minds here, wasn't there? I mean, it's... Uh, it, it, they're both they're both sides of the same problem. Uh, I, I'm slightly different approaches. Team. Yeah, I tell you why I was one of the reasons why I've kind of always viewed Eco Merchant as an important client for us. Um, when Passive House kind of started to come on the scene and to grow, and it, we suffered from this actually when when we rebranded the magazine as Passive House Plus, um, some of the old school kind of green builders out there uh, were very disappointed that we had made that jump because they viewed Passive House as being inherently uh, about uh, unhealthy buildings, about petrochemical-based sealed buildings with, uh, God forbid, mechanical ventilation, as if that's a bad thing. Because natural ventilation sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? You know, uh, or random ventilation, as some people prefer to call it. Um, <laughs> but so the, in other words, the, 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 what I liked about uh, engaging with companies like Eco Merchant was that there's been a kind of a false dichotomy created at times between, you know, uh, for instance great example of it is the mischaracterization of the term breathable because people think that means uh you know you well you, you can't build a passive house because you need your buildings to be breathable not airtight confusing breathability for you know air permeability um so this is the reason for your preference for sweaty buildings rather than breathing buildings well yeah i mean that, you're, again you're not doing a great comms job on that dan um <laughs> it's um the uh the idea of a building that can perspire or whatever that, that can allow uh vapor to 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 diffuse or whatever to not not to become a problem in the fabric right and the idea that you, so it's it's a that's what we're talking about with breathability it's it's about moisture um not air so there has been this gradual it, it has happened to a very large extent there are some stubborn uh folk who who are sort of grimly hanging on but by and large now there's a recognition that it's not a choice between things like passive house and things like using natural building materials and you know, low, low impact building materials it's about doing both and uh, and will early on got that and uh, and uh, has been a really Kind of important supplier in terms of uh, of helping people to we need, need we need new metaphors, but to kill a bunch of birds with one stone, you know, and uh, and so so there was a natural kind of relationship, I suppose, on on that basis. Yeah, one of the bugbears that I always had was that you look at the passive house and you look at what it's designed to do, which is to reduce the energy demand of a building to an incredibly low level compared to where we used to be, say, ten years ago, and when we started. I mean, it was quite shockingly low by comparison. And this was entirely personal because my job was selling natural and sustainable building materials. You look at it and think, hang on a minute, you can build this thing out of anything you want. I mean, I said to you before, you know, you could you could build it out of radioactive waste. As long as it met the metrics, you were fine. So, and I thought, hang on a minute, the importance here is, is if we just assume that you're going to build for passive, then you're going to build to that standard of energy efficiency anyway. What happens to all the carbon that's in the building? Who's counting that? Does that not matter? Well, of course it matters. And so, the idea would be, notwithstanding the arguments that sometimes we have these days about timber and embodied carbon and end of life, but what you're basically doing is locking up in the fabric of the building as much carbon as you can, creating a building that performs as required and keeps the occupants healthy. And 
there are two other things that go along with this. One is is that you're not putting anything that could cause potential. There's no potential to pollute, or there's much less potential to pollute in a naturally built building than one that uses chemical or synthetic materials. And I think that's quite, I mean, that's that's become much more important over the last few years as well. People are actually beginning to realize that this is the case. I mean, I, when when did you first hear the term off-gassing, for example? Yeah. Uh, I mean, mainly, I think initially it was in the context of things like paints, um, because the, yeah. the, the paint, the interior indoor paints that um, the stuff that you, that used to be used was chronically bad from like an occupational health and safety perspective. So we've made moving away from products that, that, as it is uncovered, that they might be doing something that's not particularly good for you. We get rid of them. But it, what what struck me was is is that that, that as you concentrate this carbon into the building shell into the, the building itself, and you concentrate any potential to pollute into the building, surely there should be something within passive house that, that, would, that would encourage you to mitigate. So instead of using product A, you use product B, because product B will do the same job, but doesn't have the associated unwelcome consequences, such as having lots of embodied energy in it. Yeah. That was the kind of thinking. And I, I mean, it, it's moved a lot. We've, we've talked a lot to the passive house trust. We've talked a lot to passive designers and a lot of passive designers have gone from really very complicated buildings to really quite simple timber frame buildings can do exactly what they need in terms of the the passive shell. And it's robust, it's durable, and the embodied carbon until, I mean, ACAN, we did a lot of work with ACAN not so long ago on embodied carbon as well when there was the consultation. Fantastic documents were put together and we suddenly realized how many people thought this mattered. There were lots and lots and lots of them. Mm. Letty and Akan have been amazing in that regard. They've really Letty and Akan have both been absolutely amazing. And and it's just it's just one of those things that it's like we were talking about earlier about this being almost almost tribal. You know, that there's a campaigning mentality about this. And the other thing is is the end user doesn't notice any difference. I I do presentations where I show people pictures of houses, and the only thing they've got in common is they're all timber frame and they're all passive. And they all look completely different. Hmm. No one can guess what they're made from. They don't even, some of them don't even look like they might even be passive. You know, we're not looking at, you know, sort of the best form pack you can get, rectangular box, you know, that kind of thing. These are, some of these buildings are really quite architecturally interesting. And yet that's the only thing they have in common. So if the end user can't discern just by looking at it and they feel better and healthier inside, why aren't we building like that? Well, yeah. And I'm delighted that we've moved uh, uh, to not express these things uh in aesthetic terms because i remember um uh seeing many years ago on like uh, the grand designs live whatever it was where they had their house of the year competition and they had a public vote award for the for the greenhouse of the year this is like 10 15 years ago and it was a fucking hobbit house you know a round house made of you know the builder's own filth uh with a with a with a grass roof or something like that and Celtic swirls all over it. And just think, you know, like, well, not, not to dis- be too disparaging because fair play, you know, um, but it's, uh, I'm not knocking the project as such. Well, I kind of am, but I'm not. Um, uh, but it's more, what really depressed me about that was that, you know, people's, the public perception of what an eco house was at the time was a hobbit house, you know, and that... I, I, we, should we just ban the expression eco house? We've had people come to us saying we build eco houses. Yeah. And, and you, you do, you get, you get rammed earth guys and then you get other people who just put a few solar panels on it and heat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's I, mean, it's it's a term, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to ask you a question, Jeff. I'm, I'm, I know, I know that <laughs> this might get edited out, <laughs> but, 
why do architects design what they design? You know, is it, you, you have people who want to build. You have people who can supply the materials and build it. And in the middle, you've got someone who designs it. Why aren't we designing buildings that, that are better? I mean, I mean, ignoring, by the way, I'm ignoring the house, the, the developer. Okay, that's another story. And, and, and maybe we'll get around to talking about it or maybe we won't. But w- why aren't architects just grabbing this with, with both hands and going, actually, do you know what? This is so much better for everything. I think there's a bunch of reasons for it. Um, a lot of people are lazy, and that includes a lot of architects. And um, there's a lot of inertia. People have you know, going through the motions, doing things the way that they've always done them. A lot of architects in the past, uh, a lot of more kind of design-led architects, their eyes uh, glaze over very quickly when you talk about this kind of stuff. I always characterize this, that uh, the kind of architects that, other than the 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 ones who are kind of shills for house builders, so signing off on bad buildings, whatever. You've got two kind of, I think, different competing concerns conceptually among architects. And I characterize them as the the Polonex and the Anoraks. I've, been, I've mentioned this loads of times in the podcast. Um, so I'm hearing this for the first time, Jeff. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. So there is a rare breed, and we're really interested in them in the magazine, of architects who wear both a Polonex and an Anorak. So an architect who can win over the design-led architects, but at the same time actually knows their arse from their elbow when it comes to building physics um, and is principled in terms of trying to deliver the sustainable stuff. So I think they're very important. But we also, I have to say, struggle with this because architectural involvement in housing, for instance, is l- is lower than it really should be um, in terms of you know quality architecture. And, and I mean quality architecture that encompasses sustainability too. We struggle as a, as a magazine... I could pick projects that only, you know, only absolutely beautiful pieces of design uh, to publish in a magazine. And now, with where we're at as an industry, from a substance perspective, I don't have to really compromise on the building physics stuff too, because there's enough great projects happening. Thankfully, with the world being on fire and all of that, you know. But I've always had this fear that if we only did that, you risk creating this perception for normal people that sustainable building, pacifiers, and so on is inherently about uh, about high end architecture, architect designed houses, but it doesn't have to be, you know. But I, I mean, I just, I mean, design is subjective. You know, whether yeah. you think a house is beautiful or not. Yeah. I, I mean, I I think that performance should be prescriptive. I mean, you look elsewhere in Europe, and you've got Belgium, for example, where their mandatory air tightness is three air changes an hour within the building regs. You look at other countries where they tightened it up, and it, 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 again, if 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 you go back to the arguments about design. The relationship between design and function you know some people love boxy architecture and brutalist yeah. architecture and some people want you know they want georgian or they it's want Charles. gothic yeah. yeah but there's no doubt about it you can you you can you can play with the facade of a building you can play with what it looks like on the outside the critical thing here is is to me is is that what most people experience is looking from inside of their house out you know if you, when yeah. you're looking at the outside in then that that's got a that's got a direct relationship with the value an estate agent will you know this this expression curb appeal okay yeah. but actually what you experience is looking using the building of the way around you're inside looking outside but it's the least regulated part of a building is the performance and the health of the occupants it's the least regulated part and it, it's kind of unforgivable really but isn't that the role of architects to make sure that buildings are wonderful habitable spaces it, it you know it's nice to have it looking good from the outside and, and location helps and etc yeah. and planning will have a will have an, an impact on what you can and can't do 
I know. Um, I, th- I think among the architectural design, design terms, one of the terms that Dan and I have been pushing for uh, widespread acceptance is, uh, I think I coined it, but probably didn't. I probably robbed it from someone. And claimed, I've not found you know, anyone else on the internet okay. who's used it in this particular form. It's oil, oil age architecture. And it's, you know, it, it's the 20th century. When you look at, at the dominant yeah, ideology and and aesthetics and so on that informed architecture in the 20th century and you know the the whole modernism and this kind of steel and glass uh, you mentioned uh, uh, uh you know what you see from the outside from of the outside of the building from from inside unfortunately a lot of architects seem to have the be of the opinion that people are lying on the floor looking out um because of the, the expanses of glass that are being put in for instance t- at times too you know so getting away from oil age architecture it was that willingness to kind of just throw away the old you know we had this extraordinary liberating uh, and we now know destructive um in many ways um transition to to fossil fuels and uh and the conf- and the confidence and the, the, the abundant cheap energy sources uh that enable people to have profligate design and that's what needs to be killed now so we need to create a new aesthetic i think for for whether you call it Anthropocene architecture or post-oil architecture, I don't know what it is. Well, I, I think I think the end of oil age, Anthropocene is a bit misleading. Anthropocene sounds too passive, like it was just a, yeah. a product of humans. Yeah, uh, it wasn't. It was a product of the the fossil fuel, the discovery and seeming endless abundance of fossil fuels, or the potential that they offered, like the low consequence potential. When the reality is, the consequences were always hidden or obscured from us. Yeah, I think this speaks to a wider cultural change that needs to happen. Like you ask about architects in particular, and I think, so you mentioned The Guardian as well. In their review of the year, I think I saw Rowan Moore, is that what he's called there? Architect. Yeah. Yeah, um, he had yeah. his top five buildings of the year, and none of them had any sort of sustainability quality. One of them was like a... a Bolly in some rich person's backyard that looked like a birthday cake. That like perfect for the Barbie movie. Like beautiful, like really interesting to look at, but grotesque in its needlessness. But like, it, it, yeah, I mean, this is the same thing. It's just, this is this is as indulgent as as it, this is why we have film stars and movie stars and pop stars and sports stars. You know, they do things that average people can't do and will never do but it doesn't stop them being admired or respected for their skill and their talent and as a consequence they get rich and then we like to see their houses and their lifestyles and everything else general reality is is you come home to your house with your family you want somewhere to hang your coats and put stuff up you want somewhere to sit down and relax with your family somewhere to eat somewhere to wash yeah and and most of us can't afford much more space than the minimum requirement you know and somewhere to sleep so we get a you get a sitting room and a kitchen diner if you're lucky. You might get a small conservatory, something on the back. And you get bedrooms and you get a bathroom. That's what a house is, you know. And that for, 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 for the including me. I mean, I live in a relatively small house. And so all the things that happen. I, I did an article on our website called the History of Building Regs, and I went around our local area, photographing buildings that were built in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2010s, and 20s. And they all still have those same components. When you look at the estate agent's blurb about the houses, the difference is, is that by the 1980s, houses are stopping having garages and front gardens. By 2020, you've got, you've got no, no front garden at all. You've got a hot, tiny little back, no park, parking. Yeah, nowhere near the bloody house, but there's parking on the estate boat. And we've gone up a story, but it's still the same configuration of rooms because we still do the same stuff. We go to work, we come home, we like to eat with our family, we watch a bit of TV, we go to bed, we maybe have a bath, we have a bath or a shower, we go out to work again, we go out to play, we go out to do whatever we do. 
it's it's I suppose to some of it is tangling aspiration up, and it's the wrong kind of aspiration. You know, do you really want a a really big house? You know, well, if you can afford it and it's a smaller percentage of your income, then fine, why not? And that's what people do. But I'd rather spend the money on having a house which is nicer to to live in, is more comfortable to live in, which is better for the environment. I don't. What, I can only sleep in one bed. You know, I can only eat yeah. in one room at a time. And you like, I, and you like your family. You don't need to be I, separate wings. Yeah, the same I, yeah. But yeah. I, I mean, maybe I'm just being a little bit presumptuous here. But I presume I'm like millions of other families in the UK. I mean, it's you know, we all have our fantasies. You win the lottery, what are you going to do? Oh, buy a big house, yeah, and then pay a thousand pounds, you know, a, 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 a week on fuel bills. And goodness knows what's on and on maintenance and cleaning and so on yeah. and all the stuff you've got to fill it with and so on. Which, yeah. which, if you are a, a footballer or a pop star and you've got lots and lots of money, it's fine because it's a very small part of what you do. And you know, so but for the vast majority of people, it's where it fits in the scale of importance, isn't it? For people, it's where the considerations. And and the other thing is, is can you do anything about it? You might you might be the most enthusiastic sustainability person and be able to do almost nothing about your circumstances except possibly move which you may not want to do because you don't want to leave the area that you've been brought up in or where your family your friends or your job or or your kids are at school there's an there's an intractability about this i mean the bit that's unforgivable is building new houses that aren't good enough yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's the, the bit you're talking it. about will uh could be packaged up uh in terms of the the direction uh, the, the kind of homes you're, you're talking about are going in could be packaged up as as uh, as developers trying to be sustainable. Now, clearly, that's not what's happening. But you know, higher density making it harder for people to 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 get to their car. <laughs> well, that, you know? if you go back to if you look at where I live and you look at where I went to, the bus service is almost non-existent. Well, that's the problem. The, the, yeah. the, the railway station is there, but it's two and a half miles away from this one I was looking at. It's you know. I, and of course, so everybody has to have a car. Okay, yeah. But the point about it is, is it's the quality of the housing as well. Th- these would have been these houses would have been built at, at probably to 2013 regs, even though they were handed over and 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 the state was completed in say 2019, mm. whenever it was. So, but you know, we it, 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 it's because it's not mandatory because it's elected. Then, when you look at our customer base, these are all people who want to build and can build mm. better building and they reap the benefits of doing so it's such a shame that as a nation we don't we don't make this a higher priority i think you're going to find this happening i think in the uk it sounds to me scotland aside and i don't know wales potentially too but in england at least that um relying on government to make the change that's required is probably not a great idea no there's know? a I think there's a great feeling of that. Hang on, right? Listen, guys, we'll get round to this once we've got rid of all the other problems we've got. Yeah. Once, yeah. once you've sorted out all the other crap that I've got to deal with, and then I'm going to roll my sleeves up and insulate, and you know, do everything that I want to do to make it, it it better. But all the other problems are an inevitability. You know, there will always be lots of other problems. I know, I know. And in fact, I heard um, in terms of the government stuff, I caught a snippet from uh, John Ronson, the broadcaster, uh, on. Oh God, I don't know what show it was. Was it whether it was Newsnight or something? Um, but he's been—he's a new, an excellent podcast series about the culture wars at the moment, um, uh, based on a, this. Uh, what's it called? Things fall apart. Is that a Dan? I think someone yeah. like that. Yeah, you know, WB eight po- po- poem, uh, the second coming, and um, which gets quoted everywhere these days um, because things are falling apart. <laughs> um, and 
he made the point that um, he thought that what Starmer was trying to do, and I don't want to be like a red rag to a wool because Dan obviously uh, uh, he mentioned Starmer, and and that's the yeah. I hate the prick. <laughs> there you go. Um, he, he thinks that what he's tr- what he's trying to do is is uh, is avoid getting dragged into the culture wars, and that he's doing uh, that he's 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 managing quite successfully to do that up to a point. But um, irrespective. <laughs> Let's segue right away from that whole area just before Dan's blood pressure rises. No, no, I, 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 I will contain myself. <laughs> well, I, I hate I him say. for being a liar and not being trustworthy. Like yeah. that's that's it. If he did the things he politician, yeah, well, yeah, but the worst kind of politician. Right, I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just to go back on that <clears throat> to sort of try and wrap it up. We we've been around twenty eight years, and we have lots and lots of customers who are doing fantastic work, and and from the mundane to the truly amazing stuff that goes on. And maybe it's partly our fault. You know, if, if more people knew what the people we were supplying were doing, they would be inspired and encouraged to to do better or to reprioritize some of the things they're looking at. And when, you know, if you're building, we've seen this over COVID, et cetera, people, you know, lots and lots of more, pe- more people building extensions, improving their homes. I think that a lot of people were very shocked when they had to spend all day in their own house, how it actually behaved when they weren't there. Yeah. So you, you get, I mean, you think, bloody hell, it's freezing in here. Yeah. The heating goes off at 8.30 because we've, we've gone to work. And then by 9.30, you think it's cold in here. Where's the heat going? So I think a lot of people began to realize the dynamics of how a building works and would spot that they wanted to do something. But it, it is, we're 28 years in, we're still here and with a large customer base. So there, there's lots of people doing this. Maybe part of this is a communication issue. Well, definitely that's part of it. But what I was going to say, um, and I again, I'm like a broken record because I've been saying this a lot recently, is that the the uh, the saviors here are going to be the money, uh, the, the the money mainly men, but uh, money men and women, and that seems a bizarre thing to say. But the direction of travel in terms of of policy from an EU perspective, for instance, um, has partly partially caused this. Uh, and an awful lot of pressure from from investors too has caused this uh, this uh, this extraordinary shift uh, in in finance. So we're seeing a kind of you know what looks largely fairly rigorous attention to sustainability in buildings from the biggest developers um, in terms of um, you know actual operational energy usage and uh, quantifying embodied carbon and, and and biodiversity impacts and so on and so forth you know like i am still kind of reeling from it i still can scarcely believe it it's, it's i mean that's how i ended up chatting with your man uh, anders at ubs the guys there presented a paper at the world economic forum about the importance of biodiversity etc they've got a sustainability research team who are uh, some of them are listeners to the podcast. So, hey, fellas, who they've done some really good work in reporting on a benchmark in the industry with regard to to housing, energy performance, uh, retrofit, a whole bunch of stuff. Like, I'll stick a link to their page in the show notes. And that they are benchmarking this stuff signals something quite big, something quite big that we've seen signs of. So, uh, last year we met John Bagley, who is head of risk and technical at Countrywide Surveying Services. So the largest valuation surveyor in the UK, like massive firm. And we asked him about the impact of retrofit and energy energy efficiency measures on uh, how homes are valued. And we asked, you know, are these conversations being had in those circles, blah, blah, blah. And the long and short of the conversation we had was he said, yeah, we're all talking about this stuff. 
but it's not making, it's not having any impact on any part of the business right now. The market's overheated, so it doesn't matter how energy inefficient the homes that people are buying and selling actually are. And then at the other end of the market, or a very different place in the market, I was having a chat with a firm who have a platform, a sensor. <laughs> they do data analysis of sensors in uh, homes for the student rental and PRS sector. Like that's their primary. And they have managed to demonstrate a direct link between investment in retrofit and maintenance and the value of monitoring to the impact on an asset's value. This is for real estate investors. So big funds who they buy a big lump of uh, real estate, develop it into the thing they want to develop it into, and then knock it out. And so they buy the thing, the asset, with an exit plan. And the exit is where they realize the value. The primary goals are increase occupancy, reduce costs, boom, get out, realize a big profit. But these fellas, they're actually investing in monitoring and managing the occupants, like helping the occupants to run a place more efficiently because it reduces the costs at their end. Then this reduction in costs, this operational efficiency. So these guys, they're managing to demonstrate the value of mixing your capital expenditure, your investment in the property and your operational expenditure to increase the value of the asset as a whole. Like with the that, goal that's 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 a really good example of how prioritization works. Social housing, if you're the owner of stock and you are the custodian of tenants who provide you with an income, and that if you, you look at what your costs are, and if your costs are energy bills, defaults, maintenance, unoccupied properties, etc., then you're you you are motivated to do something about it. Strangely, at either end of the market, people with a lot of disposable income and social housing are the two ends where you're seeing passive moving with, with greater levels of penetration in the market. Okay. Yeah. You know, it, there are endless examples of social housing organizations that have built passive buildings and they've solved problems that they didn't think they were going to solve necessarily. And the other thing is, is, is using really good quality stuff. There's, I remember being told a little story from a company that I don't think exists anymore, but it supplied basically steel, pressed steel baths into social housing. And taps as well. So grower taps, you know, Caldivide baths, that kind of stuff. And what they were saying was, is that if you put these in, into housing with, especially with families and the mum's washing three kids in the bath and you put a plastic bath in and dad's comes home and he's, he's a, a muscly scaffold every way, 17 stone, you know, you're all using the same bath over time. It will bend and flex and the, the silicon will go and they won't necessarily notice it's your job to repair it. So it leaks and then you get, but by putting this bath in, you solve all those problems. It's absolutely dead solid. It's rock solid forever. And they use the same kind of mentality that you would in a hotel. These taps are going to get used 30, 40, 50 times a day by everybody. So why are we putting in stuff that you need to replace the wash and work? And it was just simply that that trade-off between avoiding maintenance costs and consequential problems and upfront costs that they're prepared to take because they were looking at a longer view. The same goes with the sustainability side of it. If you're building a passive house for somebody, you take them out of energy poverty pretty much straight away. So you can see that going to market. It's kind of the squeezed middle, I think. Wasn't it? Wasn't that what the Tories <laughs> used to call people? Sounds oh, like that me might have been at a, my a, age. One, the squeezed middle. The squeezed middle. It was. It was definitely. It, that's where the problems are. And you, you, you still hear of people nowadays of people saying you know, they earn tens and tens of thousands of pounds a year, and they're still living from paycheck to paycheck. 
I mean, you know, the, the common denominator, obviously, between the social housing and and self builder, for instance, then is that the that you have an owner uh, that that retains a long term interest in the, in the property uh, and the, and the all of the outgoings, the the operational expenditure that you're going to have in, in maintaining it and so on. The dynamic that's needed to tackle the speculative market, or one of them at least, is f- f- uh, to, to identify who is involved, who retains a an ongoing interest in that property. It's the bank that, that writes the mortgage on it. So um, there are, so the, you know, shout out to the, the European project I'm involved in, the Smarter Finance for EU, which is about trying to develop the market. Uh, we have a Tar- an ambitious target of 100 billion euro worth of uh, of uh, of green uh, development finance and mortgage products that we're hoping to 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 get developed in terms of of actual money committed on on buildings to credible EU taxonomy aligned certified uh, green uh, green homes. Um, so you know there there are parties involved. You know not that every property is going to be mortgaged, but there are parties even involved there uh, for whom there are risks. Um, you know uh, that could affect the value of the, of the asset if it's if it's being sold in future or uh, or the default risk and, and and so on and even just um, because of all of this other this policy the taxonomy and the S, the, the SFDR these kind of different directives that are that are affecting things um, there's a there's a need to show that that your money is being invested in doing good things basically and that is a well, change. <clears throat> Goes back to a point Dan made. It's a question I've asked. We've, we've consulted widely with mortgage providers and lenders about looking at, at encouraging people, and not only just encouraging, but enabling people to to demand or to build using more sustainable and natural building materials. But I suppose one of the questions that keeps on cropping up is how do you value a building? You know, there's all sorts of things play a part. If, if you've got a semi-detached property and one property hasn't been lived in for five years, and the other one has a young urban couple in it who are a little bit more minimalist and into sort of you know art and culture, etc. Both properties will look different. Will they be valued differently when you send a value around? Will he look differently? I mean, how much of it is subjective and how much of it is based on performance? So you know, and yet if you're building a, a building and you've got to go through the architect, the architect, the whole design process to, has to predict how the building will work. Okay, so you, you've in, in essence at that stage you've got a means for valuing the building. This building on on paper will perform better than this one. Okay, then you've got to add on that. What do we mean by performance? Okay, so mm-hmm. energy demand, air leakage, etc. So we're not talking about what whether you've got Italian light switches and lighting and a, 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 an eighty thousand pound kitchen, okay, or whether it's been redecorated recently. So fundamentally, sitting at the core of this is a means of valuing a building based on its performance and then its durability. And so you can look, and this is kind of the kind of thing I think people are beginning to look at is as part of the calculation. Can we? Can we remove some of this subjectivity and say, if you build in this manner? I, I suppose the analogy I think I probably said to you the other day, Jeff, when we were talking about something was, if you're an insurer and a customer comes to you who's a, a committed chain smoker, you're not going to give them as favorable terms as you are somebody who's a who's a non-smoker and a committed exercise freak. Yeah, you know? and they're quite open about it. And and yet at the same time, you know, we don't we don't apply the same mentality necessarily to lending against a building. Maybe in part because the land it sits on is it has considerable value in terms of a portion of the, well, you know. So, but it's just one of those things. I mean, it, it's again we've been also we've been looking at with the finance companies that we've been talking to about finding some way to again to 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 enable the use of natural materials, especially when building passive. And it, it it's it's being well received. And there's lots and lots of architects that we talk to who are who are really good at designing buildings like this. 
I think we should. I, I, I think it's it, the key is giving. Well, there's a bunch of elements to this, but we are now getting to the stage where we we're we're um, beginning to have access to the tools that enable us to to actually quantify benefits and impacts um, from the kind of decisions we take with material specifications and so on. And and so whether that's with regard to embodied carbon or other environmental indicators, um, or whether that's with regard to uh, impacts on air quality, for instance, you know, so that that kind of shift is 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 critical, I think, you know, um, and um, it's, it, it's a it's a shame we can't do sort of like a blind tasting. You know, if you want, if you want to, if you wanted to do, you could get wine from you know ranging in price from you know two hundred quid a bottle to six quid a bottle, and get people to taste it and say which one do you like best. You know, it's a shame you can't do it with a house. That's but a fan- <laughs> that is a fantastic idea, actually. I wonder whether it's conceivable to uh, to find some some academics who are able to do a monitoring study on a building that they know nothing about up front and ask them to determine. From from the information they're getting back from the sensors and so on, what uh, what for instance the building's built of? It reminds me of a, a, an experiment that was run. It was done, I believe, in Holland. And what they did was they the the, the team who were conducting the experiment went down to the local university campus and recruited a load of, of students to perform a task. And the task was to copy out from it was probably the phone book, but just to copy out. It was a very, very boring and mundane task. Just what do I have to do? You have to sit at this table. Here's this book. You have to copy that and onto this bit of paper here. What they were actually measuring was not concentration or the ability to transfer information. What they'd done was is that they had each room was exactly the same temperature and with exactly the same relative humidity. What they'd done is changed the color and the texture of the surfaces. And the question they asked them afterwards was, how comfortable did you feel? doing this was it was the room warm enough for you was it cold enough for you etc and what they found was is that in particular things like lime plaster and softer surfaces i mean this is kind of common common sense but as the students going into it thought they were doing some form of of test about their their ability to concentrate or perform a task they were asking about something that they experienced and they experienced it subconsciously as they were doing this and what they found was is that you can significantly change people's perception of temperature in particular by changing the texture of the wall surface and the color of the walls and this is what the lime manufacturers will tell you lime brings a certain feel to a property and again you know when we're talking to people about internal wall insulation and indoor climate and how to make themselves feel more comfortable there's a difference between how comfortable you feel and how the room is actually behaving so you can have two rooms with near identical temperature and relative humidity and one is, oh, this is lovely and cozy, isn't it? And the other one, go on, put the heating on. <laughs> you know, the funny thing, Will, is you're, um, many years ago, there were some companies going around there promoting, I'm sure they're still knocking about, saying, uh, don't bother with external insulation or anything like this. You know, um, we've got nano paint. Uh, you know, the nano fairies are here to, to you know, to, to like a, you know, whatever, a, a millimeter, couple of mil thick coat of paint is going to keep your house toasty and warm. Maybe. I was too hasty in dismissing them. Maybe the color of the paint. Let, let's just just let's just just revisit that very quickly. If, if if you were the student in a room with a stainless steel desk and walls painted ice blue with fluorescent lighting, and I was in a room with a wooden floor and honey colored walls with a wooden table. Yeah. Just thinking about it, as I a thought experiment. You're thinking, right? I'm going to say the one with the stainless steel table. So you you, you kind of get it. 
and, and I know and I, I'm not. I'm, I was I was uh, ripping the pace a bit, but at the same time, I I I I I I'm not doubting that there's absolutely something in this. Um, I, I think there is, and I think that again, you know, this is this is a combination of design. It's the combination of materials. It's a combination of building performance. Guess what? It's effectively what architects do, with the exception probably of interior design. Unless you're Luchens or you know, so you're given the whole job. So I think, but it, it is important as well. And, and again, I, I, just for regular houses, you know, we complain about boxy houses in in the UK. Again, I mean, maybe this is why there's lots of programs about on the TV about doing up your house. You know, because we're all faced with the same problem. You know that you know small, boxy, unpleasant, poorly performing houses. Yeah, well, at least we can make them look nice inside. Yeah, at least we can buy more lipstick for the pig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a strange one, all right. Uh, no, I I think like the the you know you have placebo effect and as a well known phenomenon that occurs in 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 other areas. So these things absolutely they they're they're they're, they're credible. So the health element of the health arguments is a large part of what you it's a large part of what you do in terms of of you know explaining and picking the kind of products that you that you choose to to distribute yeah i think so i mean it, it, we steer clear of things that could cause problems we include in our range things that are derived from renewable and natural resources so wood fiber wool hemp basically if you can if you can shave it off an animal or you can pick it off a tree or you can harvest it then and you can make a building product and you know don't get me wrong there are companies whose products we supply who've been around for years these are highly engineered products you know, even wool is, you don't just shear it off a sheet and, you know, put it in a bag and send it to someone put it in their house. These are designed engineered products. They, they pass all the relevant tests that any other building material will have to pass. As many of them have got BBA certificates. Yeah. A lot of them are certified passive components. So the, the natural materials market globally is a huge market with some really, really big players in it. And it, it is, it's done to a very, very high degree. Well, I've got um, I've got a pitch for you then, Will. So I had to pick up my little dog, the Maltese dog, uh, Poochie, considering considering he was about to bark. But um, I have to cut his hair myself because he he was traumatized the last time I took him to a dog groomer. So next time I I cut him, cut his hair, yeah, I'll uh, uh, uh we'll see if we can open up the market for uh for dog well, fur. Yes, no, I don't yeah. get the, 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 <laughs> my daughter found this online. She showed me a picture some time ago of a couple wearing rather garish Christmas-looking jumpers that were made from the hair of their own dogs, which they sent <laughs> off to this specialist company. <laughs> Over, they collect all the hair from the grooming of the dogs. And when the dogs had died, they had the dog, they had the, the dog hair made into these jumpers. I'm not sure we... I'm not sure that dog hair insulation would be a particular big winner. I'm not sure I'm not sure whether the, the resource is large enough. To support. Could, well, he's, yeah, he's, he's, there's not much to him. You'd get a draft excluder out of him, probably, Jeff, yeah, over the course of a year or two. Like in the shape of a tail or a dog's egg, like something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, but yeah, so and the other thing I think that we focus on, which is really important, is is building shell performance. So, again, you associate, it's it's the old thing we go through, lots of people you know. I remember being asked by this, by an air tightness trainer, if you're going to go out on the, on the hill, would you do what, would, and you only could take one piece of clothing, would it be a fleece or would it be a wind cheater? Yeah, well, it would be the wind cheater. Yeah. And so, you know, insulation that's not protected from air movement doesn't work as well, or in some cases at all. Yeah. And then as soon as you've got air movement, you've got moisture movement, so you've got consequential issues with moisture. The other thing is is that, that I think is important is that natural materials behave differently to synthetic materials 
in that they can absorb and release water as a, as a vapor or even sometimes as, as a liquid. So they're more forgiving. You, we see this quite often in external wall insulation, don't you? Mm. Where you're putting external wall insulation and, and it does a really good job as long as there's never a crack or a break in it. But buildings move, they change over time. And so this is when you start seeing all these horror story pictures of cracked insulation and blown render, et cetera. Natural materials tend to be tend to be more forgiving. So if you do encounter a leak or whatever within the building, or if there is air movement, then there's a there's a chance that it will to some extent be able to recover. And there's quite a lot of natural insulation materials that work perfectly well as well when they've got higher levels of, of humidity. When they've mm. got, when they're when they're holding more water. In fact, if you look at things like calcium silica, they're absolutely fine holding a vast amount of water and then releasing it back out again as a vapor. So it's a combination between not containing anything you don't want in there, being genuinely renewable and sustainable, acting as a buffer and a moderator within the building and being forgiving, that I think is a good combination and it's attractive. That's what I think appeals to people. I think I think it's really important to emphasize that element. I mean, in other words, with some of these materials from a, from a performance perspective you could you could be completely hostile to to uh, environmentalism for instance and you could still see the the rationale behind using these materials because they're problem solving materials not that they're magic bullets uh, but you know calcium silicate board for internal insulation for instance uh, if you have to internally insulate um you, you know I th- i'm thinking back to joseph little uh, who we have to have on the podcast, uh, his seminal article, for, series of articles for us, which nearly killed me back in the day, called Breaking the Mold, which was his thesis. And he showed that this is a point that bears repeating. Certain approaches to internal insulation that predominate, in particular with like, you know, uh, where, where, where you have more vulnerabilities would be like a single leaf wall, like a brick wall or, or a wall that doesn't have a continuous cavity, uh, basically, one kind or another. If you internally insulate with like an insulated plasterboard, Joseph was the first to demonstrate at least that I'd seen um, in a proper kind of quantitative method that you had an unacceptably high risk of mold growth behind the insulation. And the way to solve this um, in, you know, and you have to be careful, you know, because again, there's no magic bullets. Um, Calcium silica board's not going to be, not going to solve every problem, you know, and there's an acceptable limit of it, depending on how vulnerable the building is. But it was the only product in this exercise that he he looked at that was ex- that was stopping moisture uh interstitial condensation from becoming an issue so those kinds of performance issues and i suppose the fact that some of these materials we're talking about are kind of materials that were used 100 years ago or more you know well, I, I i think i j- just wanted to pick up on that performance thing because there, there are certain things that natural insulation materials do better than synthetic insulation materials and there's vice versa. There are no natural materials that you can use in a brick and block cavity, for example, that that that, asked, that, would, that anybody's going to heartily recommend. If you're going underneath the slab, then yes, use a, a PIR board. But if you take wall sections or roof sections, there's a capacity of of, of wood fibre in this case um, or insulation material to re- to resist the passage of heat. So you're used to conductivity in the term of a U value. So. But the passage of heat is is a different capacity of the insulation. And, and if you call it phase shift, decrement, delay, it doesn't matter. But it's the time yeah. it takes to travel through. Looking, If you look at a, a, a roof section with a, a, a 0.13 U-value, mm-hmm. okay, so you're looking at a REGS-compliant type roofing section, just by changing the insulation, 
there's there's a, a, a diagram on our website as well, but I mean, Stico published this as well, where you've got the same U value mm. and more or less the same thickness, give or take 20, 30 mil. Mm-hmm. And you've got a phase shift difference between at the worst at 7.2 hours, which would be glass wool and mineral wool. PIR give you about eight. Just changing that for wood fiber gives you a phase shift of 16 hours. No. Right. So what does that mean so in it, it, ordinary it, dummy terms for me? So, well, I'm a dummy too. So <laughs> here goes. The, the decrement delay or phase shift is the time it takes for the, the maximum temperature recorded on the outside of a building section to be recorded on the inside. So it, it, let me just expect, try and explain it a different way. If I said to you the caravan effect. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Okay, so if you're if you're building a room in a roof, or you're living, you're you're underneath a, a solar collector on a building like a roof, it's going to get warm. And we've all done this. We've all been around to someone who's converted their loft or whatever, and you go in at ten o'clock in the morning on a May morning and thinking, bloody hell, it's a bit warm in here, <laughs> you know? Well, it's because the conductivity will be compliant; it will meet the regulations. But but the the the, the delay of that heat transfer, the phase shift or the decrement delay, is not required in building regs, so no one's thought to put it in. So if the sun's on the roof for nine hours, if you put PIR in there, after 8.1 hours, there is no more resistance. It's just filling the room up with heat consistently. And then it's got to get back out again. Yeah. If the sun's on the roof for 12 hours or 14 hours, and you've got 16 hours decrement delay or phase shift, then that heat's never going to get into the inside of the building. By the time the sun comes off the roof, it's trying to get back out again. And this probably explains why wood fiber in particular as a roofing material has really, really taken off. I mean, huge growth over the past four or five years, because I think enough people have been going on about this for long enough that people have gone, actually, hang on a minute, even though we might be using mineral wool somewhere else or PIR in the ground or the cavity, when we get to the roof, we're using wood fiber. And they they could be that they don't care about the green benefits. What they've done is identified a performance characteristic of something that happens to be a natural product. Yeah. So I don't want to hang on to them, all this green stuff, and put them off. Yeah. Okay. I just want to say to them, fine, that's the performance benefit that you gain from using a natural insulation material. Same goes with calcium silicon. Moisture management, same goes with wood fiber and wool and hemp and cellulose for moisture management. Same goes for blowing natural insulation fiber into timber frame. Okay. So it's a performance thing in a lot yeah. of cases. Yeah, yeah. And cellulose, too, uh, has the same kind of benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same. And then again, you look at things like, again, sheathing buildings, especially if you're building with timber frame, which, you know, more and more of the big developers are doing as well. It's a tongue and groove profile. So you have a, you have, you have a degree of wind tightness simply from the insulation here. And there are applications on roofs and walls where you don't even need a membrane. The wood fiber board will do enough to protect the building. Mm. So you're, you're, it's like that old thing about, you know, why am I taking two bottles into the shower when I can take one? Well, it's not just taking two bottles. You can take three, four, five, six bottles into the shower instead of, you know, one instead of three, four, five, six bottles. You know, it, it, it's a bit like air tightening strategy as well. There's liquid membranes, there's tapes, there's boards, there's all that. You need all of them. You use a bit of all of them. You're never going to do everything with a tape and a membrane. There'll be occasions when a board is just better. So... Yeah. I think when we look at, you asked Jeff about the products we do. So if you want to build using natural and sustainable building materials and you want the building to perform, then the products that we have on our website, the products that we sell should be perfect for that ambition. So based on where we've got to in the conversation, there are three clear things that we should be able to take away from it or themes that we can pick up. One, the need to ditch oil age architecture. 
So implicitly within that is this shift to natural materials where it is, where it makes sense to do so. We need to normalize data collection so we can learn, make better decisions, uh, and think differently about how we approach buildings. So to use your example just then, we don't want to be taking two bottles into the shower. And similarly, back to where we sort of started uh, and a bugbear of Jeff's, what's the payback of the the insulation or the measures that we are taking? And you don't think about the payback of your sofa. You have a more comfortable home. You never worry about the payback. And perhaps we should be normalizing people thinking about insulation and things like that in those terms. And through that, we can expect and come to experience better quality and consequently healthier homes. And that's that's what's going to make the change. How we activate that, well, fuck knows. You yeah, we need to get to a situation where uh, where the payback is a, is is a co-benefit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, but is there anything that we haven't got to touch on today, Will? That you're itching to to get out? Uh, yeah. There's there's always loads. I mean, you know, the, what I what I'm seeing and what what we're you know the the, the world that we're in is quite a, a close knit world. So we talk to people that would be quote unquote our competitors. You know, we talk to our suppliers. The whole market is doing better. There, there is more business. And of course, that means that the people are using the materials that we sell, that they're using the, 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 the methodology to build that, that we're all talking about. There are more architects doing this. There are more builders who are happy with this. I think some of this is just staying the course. As much as we'd love much more tougher regulation and, and, and moving us towards a, a lower carbon construction sector, it's fraught with problems. You know, so, you know, you pass, if you look at passing regulations about tightening, say, embodied carbon, half the industry is going to go, yeah, and then everyone else is going to go, oh, God, that's going to cause us the most awful problems. So it, it's about weighing it up. But I think the bit that I probably, I think where you've got it probably most appropriate for the general audience here is, is, that, is that a lot of these products that we've been talking about and the building system we've been talking about work and they work really well. So just look at them as as another way of building that gives you benefits that you might not have accrued by doing something else. And this is the reason why we need to do this data collection. Perhaps this is something we will speak about after the recording. Could this be baked into the sales process? You know, encouraging people to monitor themselves rather than have some sort of... Well, isn't that what energy smart meters do? I mean, I, I do sometimes wonder just how useful facts are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I agree. 100%. And, and, you know, we spent, I spent too much time with incredibly technical people and not understanding some of it and thinking, hang on a minute, how are we going to tell this, you know, what we can encapsulate what you've just said to me? And they do. And they go, well, why don't we just say that? And there's, oh, well, people won't understand. And, and so am, am, am I presenting facts to people? What about the facts that they present to counter my argument or, the uptake i'm I'm thinking i'm thinking about something that will take too long to get into it's not for now i mean it's 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 it's, you're a marketeer i you know i'm involved in marketing our business it's it's a particular how you present your product and what people think of it is actually a really interesting topic yeah it's yeah it's, it's about stories all that kind of stuff i um dan have i done that anecdote about the the Stuart lee joke on the podcast before Basically, Stuart Lee is a very kind of cerebral stand-up comedian. We have to include a link to this in the show notes, Dan. Yeah, yeah we'll find it. Yeah, um, and um, the story is that he's in the back of a, a London taxi, uh, and um, 
apropos of nothing, the taxi driver starts offering his opinions. And uh, he, he says, uh, I think all homosexuals should be killed. And Stuart Lee's a, 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 he responds is, okay, well, that's, that's a bold opening gambit. But he, he does what most people don't do in that situation. And he actually, he takes him on and asks him, okay, well, um, wh why do you think that? And the taxi driver initially is kind of stunned by the fact that somebody's actually asked him that question. He, to, to kind of justify his position. And he says, well, it's a, it's a moral, isn't it? So Stuart Lee says, well, uh, I'm not sure morality is the strongest kind of basis for you to, to use for your argument because, you know, um, it's flexible, it changes throughout time. And if you go back to ancient Greece, for instance, the culture that was the kind of the foundation of our uh, aesthetics and ethics and uh, our legal system and morality and so on. In ancient Greece, uh, the love between you know, two men was considered to be, if you will, almost more moral, more ethical, like the highest form of love. So for that reason, I don't think it's a very strong basis for your argument. And the taxi driver just turned around to him and said, well, you can prove anything with facts. <laughs> and that yeah. has always stuck yeah, yeah, yeah. me as a wonderful kind of a uh, slogan. <laughs> I am going to call time on this conversation. So, Will, do you have anything that you want to plug or anywhere you would like to direct people? Obviously, Eco Merchant, all one word. Yeah, two, two, two sites. I mean, obviously, yeah, shout out to Jeff and, and, and PH Bus. I mean, I know we pay to be in this magazine, but they're great supporters of us as well. And, um, so and all credit to we are picky, you know. You are picky, and it's nice to know that I am a picky person as well. I'm I'm, I'm the picky person who's been picked. Eco merchant, yeah, I definitely think we should um, you should do, include in there webuildeco.com. Yeah, something we haven't mentioned today about eco merchants. We we do lots and lots of collaborative things, and we find it works for us well in the sector. And webuildeco is a collaboration, so it's probably the most important one at the moment. But yeah, well, yeah I'm, the article that, that I wrote about. Uh, yeah, Jeff wrote an, a nice article about it. That's and a really, really interesting and, and, you know, good initiative. Yeah, it'll be it'll be of interest to a lot of listeners. Yeah. I mean, what I liked about today, when I listen to podcasts, which I tend to do in the car when I'm mm. on a long journey, I tend to prefer the more chatty ones. The one thing I have a problem with on most podcasts, if I'm being honest, is experts. Mm. <laughs> and you know we've got an expert in on this which basically means i'm you're going to get quite a narrow viewpoint about yeah. this particular topic from someone whose entire job is doing that and actually what i would prefer is is to have a topic from some generalists where we should be etc to uncover problems that might even encourage people to go and say i tell you what i'm going to go and see if i can find out some more information this has been great fun thank you very much and i just hope people enjoy listening to it but there's I think chatting around the subject. I said to Dan, Jeff, the other day, it's a, you and I get a bit bloke down the pubby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, some really good ideas have come out of it. Some really interesting topics have been explored and looked at simply by, I mean, sort of We Build Eco to an extent came from that, from our conversations. No way. Because um, it was all getting too technical. You know, if you've got money and you've got, and you want to build a house and you're trying to break through a technosphere into this technical, you're out your depth almost immediately. It's your bloody money. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you, you should you should be thinking contract. What happens if it goes wrong? Yeah, how do I know it's going right? What I don't want to know know is about non-repeating psi values very much. <laughs> I don't understand what you're fucking talking about. <laughs> no, there, all that stuff is important, but it needs manners put on it as well. You know. Um, yeah. yeah, but I take my car to the garage, and the 
the, the chap services it. And I don't expect him to come out and talk to me about timing sequences. Yeah. As it matures as an industry, we'll realize that that, uh, you know, it, it's it's good enough to know that there is that, that there are experts in a darkened room somewhere who are who are carefully checking these things. You don't you don't have them sell the car to you. you know? yeah. I don't know how my mobile phone works, you know, but I'm happy yeah. to own one. Yeah, yeah, and 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 I'm I'm very grateful for all the technical and very clever people who made it work. But the person I deal with is, I, you know, is this whole. Uh, this is actually a topic that, that I've mentioned to before. This is another topic that I would probably want to talk around, which is effectively how do we create a bigger market? What's wrong with our messaging? I think the that, critical that thing more is people are that, not doing it. We tend to have either the technical people or the marketing people, and the marketing people don't understand the technical stuff, and the technical people don't know how to market. Yeah, there's, there's a balance. We need to find a way from a marketing perspective to ensure that we're not polishing turds, that we're actually promoting solutions that work. Um, well, I think you know, it, there's two things I would say that on a marketing that any marketer will understand. One, one is synchronicity, and yeah. the other one is demand pull. The very quick example I'll give is organic food. Originally, organic food, you went to Cranks. Yeah, it was a specialist purchase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. that's what you did. Now you can accidentally, if you get to the checkout thing, oh, fuck, I picked up organic carrots. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so what's happened is, is you've created demand pull so that it's become synchronized. You're not the only person. You don't feel you're the only person doing it. Everybody's doing it. You're perfectly happy to do it. You're part of a, a large group of people who understand the benefits. And yeah. you can now choose whether you do or you don't. So it's fully synchronized and the demand pull is there. And the only problem is, is occasionally you think I'm a bit tight on funds this week. And I, I've just bought organic carrots and I, I'm quite happy with normal ones. Well, I'm going to, in our case, I'm going to give them to the horses. So why am I spending bloody, you know, twice the price on organic carrots? But you get the benefits, you get everything else. Now that simply hasn't happened with building materials, partly because I think, of course, is that you're not the one buying the materials. Mm. Builders buy them. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, if you had your own personal chef and they were going down to the shops and buying your behalf, then you'd be trusting them to do it, wouldn't you? Well, I think this is perhaps we should find some time to have a conversation about this elsewhere. So, I have a lot of experience having worked with the financial services industry where it is pre Reformation Catholic Church business, arcane language that no one can understand, all in Latin that's designed to be utterly exclusionary. And so part of my job was dumbing it down into something that you could use for marketing to make mm. it sound, to make it interesting where it's not interesting and it can be understood by dummies. Not well, I, I think the answer is, is I want that. Now, could you explain it to me is the right way around. Not yeah. could you explain it to me so I want it. You reduce that, it to the value and then show, hold a mirror to them. This, is, this, this could be you, like one of them Elvis mirrors. This could be you, like experiencing yeah. that value. Yeah, right. So, Early day Delvis, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people can choose what they prefer. Okay. So, all right, uh, we'll just wrap up then. So check the uh, check the show notes to find Will's website, uh, websites, these different projects. Join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC. Ladies, check her own space. Also check Lloyd Alter's Substack. Upfront Carbon. Passive House Plus, subscribe, advertise if you can. We'll can vouch for it. What else do we have to do? Talk to us about the consultancy if you need any help with anything like that. Sorry, Jeff, were you going to say that? Nope. No, you, nope, no, not now that you have, so that's fine. Uh, man, there's something we always miss off. Perhaps that was it. That's enough, yeah. 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 That's enough. That'll do. Um, 
All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Will. It's been a pleasure. Um, and thank you for joining us at home. Um, oh, that was it. The sharing bit. If you get some out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them and review and like and whatever. If you could give us a five-star review, that'd be great. Just press the buttons in the app. If not, that's fine. Whatever. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>